If you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. We're going to be in a little three-week interlude here for the next few weeks. We like to do this every year as uh, we kind of enter into back-to-school time. A lot of new people move in in the summer, and we want to reorient ourselves around our mission and vision as a church. Uh, So pretty much every time of year, if you show up at this time of year, we'll be thinking about our vision and our mission. So Jesus gave us our vision uh, in Matthew 28, right before he rose up into the heavens. He said, uh, all authority has been given unto me. Go and make disciples of all nations. So that's where we get our vision, and we translate that and say that the vision of Grace Bible Church is to glorify God by multiplying followers of Christ among every people group. That's really just a translation of Matthew 28 there at the end. Uh, And so what we're saying is we want to make disciples or followers of Christ. That's what he's called us to. He's called us to follow him, and then he's called us to invite others to follow him as well. And so the next three weeks, we're going to be looking at discipleship through three different lenses, understanding uh, three different ways that we can be disciples. Um, This morning, we're calling it Commitment as discipleship. We're going to look at one of the hardest sayings of Christ in Luke chapter 14, one of the hard sayings where he he says, it's a big deal, it's a big commitment to follow me. So he's not not attending all the church growth seminars where he's being taught how to make it as easy as possible to be a follower, but he's saying it's hard. He's saying it's going to be difficult. He's going to say it's a big commitment Um, So this is an interesting text for us this morning. Uh, Just before we read what he talks about, about being a disciple, I want to give you a little definition that I find helpful for discipleship from Jonathan Dodson's book, Gospel-Centered Discipleship. Jonathan's a pastor in Austin and a friend of mine. And what he says is that we often kind of hobby horse on one lens or another and don't really get the full picture of discipleship. So a disciple's a follower. And Dodson says that has three different Uh, kind of shapes to it. One, a disciple is a follower in the sense of being a learner. So a disciple is rational and he's a learner. You've got to learn what Jesus has to say, right? And so for a lot of you, you gravitate to that. I gravitate to that. I'm nerdy. I like to read. I like to study doctrine, right? So I love the learner part of being a disciple. But it also, uh, when we read through the scriptures, Dodson points out that a disciple is relational. You're a part of a family, right? You you share things in common. That's part of the view we have biblically of being a disciple as well. You're part of a family. So we have to keep that in mind, the relational aspect of being a disciple. And then the third lens that Dodson uses is a disciple is missional or a missionary, right? So that means we're doing ministry. So like Jesus was sent into the world, we're sent into the world and we're going to follow in his footsteps. So those are just three different ways to think about that term disciple, being a follower of Christ. Now we'll read Luke 14. If you don't have a Bible and want to grab one, there's some black Bibles underneath the chairs there. We'll be on page 874. So we're reading Luke 14, verses 25 through 35. Again, one of the hard sayings of Jesus about commitment as discipleship. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters... Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, 
all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Let me pray. God, we ask that you would give us ears to hear. We know that in Romans it tells us that every single one of us suppress the truth. And so, God, we, we pray that you would open our hearts and our minds. I pray for those this morning that are skeptics. God, help us to not be the Lord of our own universe, but to hear what you have to say. God, we pray that you would shape us and teach us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, several years ago, my wife and I bought our first home, and it was an 80-year-old fixer-upper, which I don't recommend, by the way. We were doing a lot of different projects in this house, and one of the things we wanted to do was get rid of this old, weird vinyl wallpaper they had in one of the bathrooms. We didn't really like it. We started tearing it down, thinking we'd replace it with something different or just scrub the wall and paint the wall. When we tore this old, heavy-duty wallpaper down. I don't know if it was from the 50s or when it was, but it was really thick. When we started tearing it down, we realized there was just boards there. There was no sheetrock. It was just boards on the wall. And we thought, well, that's, that's cool. Old antique house, we'll just paint the boards, right? We'd seen that in a magazine or something. So we go ahead and finish tearing all the vinyl down. Um, but as we tear it down, we realize it's not all boards, but there's uh, a window. At one point, this used to be the back of the house. It's not anymore, but it, at one point, it was the back of the house, and there's a window. So there's a big hole there. Okay, we keep going, and then there's where a medicine chest used to be, another hole in the wall, and we keep going, and then there's a door uh, that we didn't know was there before. So really, there's no boards left. There's hardly any wall left at all, so now we have to sheetrock back up against uh, the walls there in the bathroom, and this is really parallel to what Jesus is talking about in someone figuring out about building a tower and then not having enough to finish it. That sort of thing happened to me again and again in this house. I embarked on this bathroom job thinking we'd just have a wall to paint, and then we had boards to paint, and then we had no boards, and we had sheetrock I had to hang, and I'd never hung sheetrock before. And so, again, I was embarrassed, just like Jesus describes. I felt silly. I didn't know what I was getting myself into. I was in over my head. And what we see Jesus doing here is talking to the crowds of people that are impressed with him, kind of like a crowd here, right? We've got a crowd here this morning, and some of you have been taught that you can be Jesus' disciple just by thinking he's cool. And Jesus' words are, no, I want everything. I want everything. It's a commitment. It's a big commitment. Following Christ is not just mental assent. Often in the Bible Belt, we're taught that if you just believe a doctrine about Jesus, that you're his. But Jesus says, I want your heart. I want you. I want everything. I want commitment. And that's a hard saying. Like I said before, I don't know that Jesus took all the church growth seminars that uh, taught him how to be flashy and build a big crowd because he kept thinning out the crowds that would follow, follow him. Uh, Robert Bella wrote a book called Habits of the Heart. And in a discipleship book that I was reading by Greg Ogden, he talks a lot about this book by Bella, who's a sociologist. 
So Greg Ogden kind of summarizes Bella's work this way. He says, Americans want freedom from instead of freedom for. You follow that? So instead of the biblical view of freedom being something we're given to walk in righteousness, to put sin behind us, we want freedom from commitments. We want freedom from community. We want to be our own Lord, to be our own boss. So he goes on, again, summarizing Bella, Ogden says this, Americans want freedom from instead of freedom for. An attitude of, I want to do what I want to do when I want to do it, and no one better tell me otherwise. We have to be aware of the culture that we live in. We have to be aware of just the assumptions that are everywhere, that are being pumped out all the time. This is, this is just the world we live in, right? Not everybody believes that all the time, 100%, but that's generally the bend of our culture. We want to do what we want to do when we want to do it. We don't want to com- commit to some sort of community or covenant or agreement with other parties. And if there's no commitment and only individualism, it makes it really hard to build stable communities. It makes it really hard to build stable marriages. It makes it really hard to have stable institutions and stable relationships because we're all about us. And so Jesus comes along and says, you can't be about you anymore. You've got to be about me as Lord and Savior. And so Jesus lays down some hard sayings here. One of the ways he paraphrases this in another gospel in Matthew, you don't have to turn here, but I'll just throw this out because it's another way of saying some of the same things, is in Matthew he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. We hear that in our passage in Luke as well. But then he goes on and says, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? So I'm standing up here this morning sharing with you some of the hard words of Jesus that are hard for me to hear, probably as they're hard for you to hear, but I want you to understand that Jesus is offering life. Jesus is offering life. He's saying if, if you'll be all in, you'll find life. Up front, it's going to be hard, but in the end, it's going to be worth it. It's going to be worth it. The first thing that he unpacks for us when we look at commitment as discipleship is that commitment is love. Being completely committed as a disciple of Jesus means we love Jesus more than anything else. We love him. He has our affections. He has our passion. He has our heart. Look at it again in verses 25 and 26. So Luke 14, just the first two verses, 25 and 26. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Hard words. Now, we need to clarify. Often, we misunderstand uh, the words of Jesus because we want to read them through a lens of kind of a wooden literalism, but Jesus was a great speaker, and he, he used hyperbole just like any other good speaker would, and it actually was very common in Hebrew speaking in the Old Testament to say when you love one way more than the other that you hate this one. But hate doesn't mean uh, active, malicious, destructive intent in this context. So that's pretty common in Hebrew thought. You could go look at Genesis chapter 29, where in one verse, we're told that Jacob loved Rachel more than Leah. And in the next verse, we're told he hated Leah. And that's the same thing. Loving one less equals hate in kind of the Hebrew way of thinking. So it's a relative hate. It's not an active, destructive hate. It's a relative 
hey, what he's saying is you must love me. You must love me, not me, Dave speaking. Jesus is saying love, Jesus, right? Jesus is saying you must love him. You must love him more than anything else and so that your love for all these other things pale in comparison, that they just melt away. There's nothing else there, that that you're infatuated, obsessed, compelled, and driven by Jesus. Not all these other relationships, not even your own life. Yes, even his own life. So Jesus makes it very clear we have to love him more than anything else. One of the great illustrations that uh, I've heard a million times now from many different preachers is a Puritan writer named Thomas Chalmers who talks about the expulsive power of a new affection. And expulsive means it's expelling out the old affections, right? So what Chalmers is saying is that our love for Jesus drives out our love for other things. I have a picture here of what that can look like in a toddler's life. Uh, this is a little kid eating ice cream, right? Uh, any of you ever have a kid and you, you mention the idea of ice cream and then they cannot get it off their mind? Like, okay, yeah, but when are we getting the ice cream, right? Yeah, 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 but what about the ice cream? Did you forget the ice cream? And we should have that same kind of obsession with, with Jesus. He's saying everything else we, we should hate in comparison. We should love Jesus so much we should be driven and it should just kind of push all the other loves out of our heart like sometimes when i'm doing something in the yard i'm using a bucket and there's dirt in the bucket i can throw a hose in the bucket and start filling it up with water and it'll expel everything else that's in the bucket right or you've got a dish in the sink and you pour water in it and it pushes out everything else that's there that's how transformation takes place in the christian life is as we love jesus more than anything else he pushes out those competing loves He pushes out those competing loves. So he's not saying you should hate your family. He's saying you should love Jesus as ultimate. Don't worship your family. He's he's saying that everything else should pale in comparison. So whether it's a, a good thing or a bad thing, it shouldn't be our Lord. It shouldn't be our love. Jesus should be. Jesus should be our Lord. Jesus should be our love. We're all in. We're we're committed. And so he's talking about commitment to discipleship, commitment to following him, looks like love. Looks like being obsessed with him. And so when you make a decision to follow Christ, you're saying, I'm not going to follow this sin anymore. I'm turning. The word repent means turn. I'm turning and I'm following Jesus. I'm loving him. I'm seeing him as a source of life. It works with sin and it works with good things. Jesus here is talking about good things, right? Family's good. Jesus was attacking the best thing they knew in first century Judaism. He was attacking the thing that they were most likely to see as ultimate and most important in their life, their family and themselves. And he's saying, you need to hate in comparison to the love that you have for me. So again, not an active destructive hate. If you read the rest of the Bible, it's very clear we're to love our family, but we love our family because we love Jesus. We love to do what's right because we love him. So we're letting go of the power these other things have on us, good things or bad things, in pursuing Jesus. And we're allowing our love for him to expel everything else that's there. My question for you is, uh, have you embarked on that process yet? Have you embarked on that process yet? Not have you prayed some prayer, not have you agreed to some abstract doctrine, but do you love Jesus? Do you love Jesus? 
Because if you're following this sin and you're not following Jesus, then you're not a follower of Jesus. If you're following this good thing, if you're following being an all-American great family man or woman or being a great neighbor, but you're not following Jesus, then you're not following Jesus. Do you love him? Are you committed? Are you all in? What keeps you up at night? What is the thing that worries you? And chances are that's the thing that's competing for your affections. Chances are that's your love, whether it's a good thing or a bad thing. Whether it's a sin or whether it's a virtue, don't allow that to be your leader, your Lord, your true love. And when we talk about discipleship, one of the best ways to embark on that journey is what James 5.18 says, confess your sins one to another and pray for each other that you may be healed. So there's all kinds of relationships we try to encourage and help flourish at this church. We have meetings and Bible studies and uh, small groups and things like that. And that's the bottom line. Do you have another human being, another Christian that you can confess your sin to and pray with about these loves that keep you up at night that are tempting you away from Jesus? Because the process is repenting from those, turning from those, and placing your love back in Jesus and following him. And you need to confess, I'm tempted by these other loves. Will you pray for me so that you can turn and follow him? That's what the process looks like. That's what it looks like to be all in. The next thing that we see is that commitment is cross-centered. We're just going to look at one verse here, a key pivot point verse, verse 27. Look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus here is saying, not only does it mean you have to love him absolutely, but you have to carry a cross. Cross was a means of execution in the first century, right? Um, So he's inviting us to come and die. And a cross wasn't a quick way to die. It was a slow, painful way to die. So again, Jesus doesn't seem to get the newsletters that I get about how to, you know, win a big crowd and how to wow people in a church. And apparently he hasn't been to all the conferences that I've been to that teach people how to get people to think Jesus is cool. Jesus is saying, if you want to be one of my followers, you have to die. A slow, painful death. So just to put this in context, I have a picture here of calendars, your calendar pages. So some of you may use a paper calendar. Some of you may use a day planner, right? You might have an iPhone or a smartphone that you type in events. So on the first, you need to type in die, okay? On the second, type in die. On the third, die. On the fourth, die. On the fifth, die. I don't have to go through all 30 days, do I? Okay. That's your agenda. That's your new agenda, If you wake up in the morning and you have some other agenda, then you're missing out on Christianity. Christianity is to give up your rights to yourself. Again, these are hard words, but that's what Jesus is saying. It's dying to self. It's giving up your rights. So again, I just want to clarify this because a lot of us have been taught in the Bible Belt, and I'm sure I'll get to have some uh, hard conversations this week about this. A lot of us have been taught that if you have walked an aisle or you cried at a camp, or you made some kind of statement in your heart of, I believe this fact about God, that you're his. But I would say the overwhelming evidence of the New Testament is that if you're not following Jesus, you don't belong to Jesus. So if your agenda is your agenda, I'm not talking about perfection. Hear me, I'm not talking about perfection. 
But if you're not following Jesus, you're not following Jesus. If he doesn't own your calendar, if you're not carrying a cross, if you're not giving up rights to your own life, then you don't belong to him. Now, does that mean you don't ever mess up and you don't have those tug back and forth? No, that's, that's not what I'm saying. I'm not talking about perfection. I'm not saying you never make a mistake. I'm not saying you never struggle. But you struggle and you brush yourself off and you say, Jesus forgives me and I want to follow Jesus because this other Lord isn't going to save me. So I'm going to scratch that day off the calendar. I'm going to start again. And I'm going to give up rights to myself and I'm going to follow him. He is my forgiving Lord and he's my empowering Lord and he's the one that I'm going to follow. And so it's a continual death. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says that based on his mercy, right? It's driven by his mercy. It's not to win his approval. It's driven by the approval he already gives us because he loves us. By grace, we're driven to give everything up. We love him more than anything else. So again, we want to we order it properly. We want to understand that we're driven by love. That we're so amazed that he loves us that we're willing to die for him. Every day, again and again and again. A lot of preachers teach that if you follow Jesus, he'll fix everything now. But the Bible seems to teach that if you follow Jesus, he'll fix everything later. So we don't get heaven now, we get heaven later. And we get death now. Following him, giving ourselves up again and again. Following his footsteps, doing what he does. He suffered for us, so we suffer for others. He loved us first, so we love others. Others, it says in 1 John 4, 19. Colossians, it says, he forgave us, so we forgive others. He was, he was patient with us, so we're patient with others. So we're going to follow in his footsteps. He loved us first, so we're going to respond in love. He carried a cross for us, we're going to carry a cross in following him. Tim Keller talks about um, just the finality of carrying a cross. He says this, If you see someone carrying a cross, that's the last thing they're going to do, right? Again, you're done with every other agenda. You you don't have any other agenda. That's where you are. You're under arrest. He goes on to say, people in that condition don't say, this isn't really working out for me. I think I'm going to do something else. You're pretty much owned by that now. You've lost rights to yourself. To be a follower of Christ means you say, Jesus, you're Lord, and I give up my rights to myself, I die to myself. In response to your mercy, I will offer my body as a living sacrifice, as it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2. That's the challenge that we're given. The last thing that he tells us is that commitment is hard, as if he hasn't already said this, I guess, but that's the best I could come up with for the last point. Commitment is hard. It's hard. He, look at verses uh, 28 through 33. Verse 28, for which of you, choosing, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? So again, really assessing, am I in? Can I do this? Verse 29, otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. So Jesus kind of starts at level one there, and he's just basically saying, do you know what you're getting yourself into? This is going to be hard. Okay, And then level two, he makes it more clear. Verse 31, Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? So the first illustration Jesus gave makes it 
seem like it's something you can do if you just consider the cost, right? The second illustration, he's making it very clear, you can't even do it. So what does he say uh, in verse 32? If not, if your army can't defeat the other army, verse 32, and if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So Jesus is saying, if you can't defeat this other power, if you're going to lose, why don't you give up? Why don't you surrender? That's kind of what we're faced with when we face the God of the universe. Do we want to do battle with him? Maybe we should surrender and join his side. He says it this way in verse 33. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Saying, if you don't give up, you can't be my disciple. And that's hard for us, right? Um, I'm, a, I'm a Texan. So Texans, we're, we're very kind of, we, we kind of pride ourselves on having our own trucks and our own beer and our own commercials for everything, right? And, and along with that goes the come and take it, don't tread on me kind of attitude, right? Any of you Texans here? Okay, a handful. Um, I, I'd say maybe it's fair to say Americans are that way. Maybe it's fair to say military folks are that way as well. Probably a lot of you, when you're told surrender, that's what you got to do, that's hard. That's hard for you. And I would say we want to we be fighters. It's good to be fighters, but we should fight against sin and death. But we should surrender to Jesus. We should surrender to him. I have a picture of a, a white flag here. So when we think about Jesus and his lordship, we should wave the white flag. We should surrender to him. Should we be fighters in this life? Yeah, he's called us to a hard life of commitment, of giving up, taking our cross daily. Yeah, there's a lot of fighting in there. There's a lot of struggling in that lifestyle. But it's a struggling against sin. It's a struggling against our own flesh and selfishness. But it's a surrender to Jesus. It's a commitment to him to say, I'll go where you tell me to go. I'll do what you tell me to do. I'll learn what you tell me to learn. I'll love who you tell me to love because you're king, because you're boss. So thinking through the lens again of relational, rational, missional, I I would guess for those of you that are really just beginning in your life of following Jesus, of being a disciple, of being committed, you probably kind of focus on one more than the other. So so think through, are are you learning are you a learner? Are you sitting at Jesus' feet and learning from his word? Because he says that's, that's part of what it means to be committed. That's part of the hard work he's calling us to do. Are you learning his word? Are you relating? Are you in community with other people? Are you sharing life and bearing burdens, caring for each other? That one might be missing for some of you. That's part of what the New Testament says it is to be a disciple, to be a follower. And again, it's hard because we're most committed to self. And then finally, are you missional? Are you a missionary? Do you recognize that the Father sent Jesus into this world, and in the same way, he sends us into our neighborhoods and cubicles and workspaces and schools and parks? He sent you. Have you thought through it in that lens? He sent you there. Are you his? Are you obeying him there where you are? That's what it means to follow him. We're all in ministry. We're all a part of this family. We're all to be students of his word. And that commitment is hard. That's a hard commitment. I just want to clarify again, um, it's driven by his love for us. Grace is at the center. We're saved by grace alone, but grace does something. It, it makes us different. 
We're saved by faith alone, trusting in him alone, but it looks like something, right? James says, show me that you have faith by talking about it. Well, I'll show you that I have faith by working, by doing something with my life. And Paul is in perfect harmony with James. Sometimes they use individual words in different ways, but Paul says it this way in Ephesians 2, 8 through 10. By grace, you've been saved through faith, and this is not your undoing. It's the gift of God. So God gets the credit for any work, for any discipleship, for any commitment, for any straining, for any struggling that we do on his behalf. Any surrender, any following that happens, he gets the credit. Verse 9 says, it's not a result of work so that no one may boast. We don't get to boast. It's by his grace. But in verse 10, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So Paul and James both agree We're not saved by following. We follow because we're saved, right? We we love him. We're committed to him. We pursue him. We live differently because of the grace that God has shown to us in Christ Jesus. And there's one final image that Jesus finishes up with about being productive. Look at verses 34 and 35, and we'll finish there. Verses 34 and 35 say it this way. Salt is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? Now, this is not the kind of salt we have. They had mixed salt, so it was uh, salt mixed with other minerals, right? So after a while, it dissolves away, and you're left with some rocks, but no real salt anymore. So this illustration, we have to translate it a little bit. This is not pure salt in a salt shaker. Uh, This is salt mixed in with other minerals and calcium and stuff like that. So that's how they would use salt. So you could be left with just the, the bad minerals and not have any salt. It, it could be dissolved. You've used it up. And he's saying, so then when you've you got that leftover stuff that's no good, that stuff is just thrown out. It's thrown in the garden. It's thrown in the manure pile. Verse 35, it's of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It's thrown away. So excuse me, it's not thrown in the garden. It's thrown out, far away. You just get rid of it, right? Out into the trash. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So he's saying that we should be salt. And Jesus said the same sort of thing uh, in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, right? He said, we're the salt of the earth, we're the light of the world. And if, our, if we lose our saltiness, we're not doing our job. If we're hiding our light, we're not doing our job. So he's saying if we're really committed to him and we're following him as disciples, we're, we're doing what he's created us to do. We're being productive in the world. Specifically, salt brings flavor and salt preserves and gives life. In the same way, light that he talks about in Matthew. It's something that guides and gives light and helps and makes the world a better place. So if we're not living in that way, following Jesus, carrying our cross, giving our life up for others, then we're not being productive. We're not doing what he's called us to do. One of the things that we emphasize a lot at Grace Bible Church is the incredible grace that God has for us. And so I just want to reiterate that you belong to him because of what he's done, not because of what you've done. But if you belong to him and you're in his family, you will follow him. You will follow him. That's what the New Testament says. We have uh, sometimes what's a hard to understand uh, membership at our church because there's nowhere to sign. We don't have a covenant that you sign. But if you read our constitution, there's a whole page on membership uh, in our constitution. You can find it online or you can find a paper copy out there. I've actually put about 100 copies of our membership page Uh, on the back table. It's just sitting by the giving box there. And what I want you to do is I want you to take it and I want you to read through it. Because what we're calling you to is to be committed. Committed to family. Committed to learn together. 
committed to ministry, that, that's what we want to invite you to. And the way we view membership at our church is we understand that you can be a baby member, that you can be a follower of Christ that's just taking baby steps, that's just begun to fall in love with Jesus, but you have a lot to learn. And so here it's got 13 steps of what that looks like. What does that commitment really look like? We want to give you some guidance. How, how do we shape the Christian life? How does Jesus uh, transform our character? How do we live in new ways? Well, it's all on this page. I'd encourage you to grab one of these uh, when you leave this morning. I'm going to pray for us and then dismiss us. God, we thank you that you love us so much that you're willing to speak hard words to us. And God, I pray that you'd help us to listen. You'd help us to hear. And God, I pray that you would help us to follow. God, help us to carry our cross because you went to the cross for us. You died in our place. You rose from the dead. You give us life. Help us to trust in your grace so that it would expel the love we have for everything else in this world, that we would love you the most. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.